a little quickly. Genesis chapter 47. We want to finish chapter 47. And uh, we are almost done with Genesis. Lord, we'll get through chapter 48 today. There's only 50 chapters of Genesis. So hopefully, uh, the goal was by the end of the year be done Genesis. I don't think there's um, any reason why we won't be able to do that. I have a few ideas where we may go next, but uh, I am eagerly looking forward to finishing Genesis, if, if I'm being honest with you. I've enjoyed it, but uh, it is without a doubt the longest we have spent in any book. Um, and you'll never want to read from it ever again, probably. But Genesis uh, 47... Let's start there, verse 29, go, go through the end of the chapter, and then we can go in uh, chapter 48. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Peace, if I have found, or please, if I have found uh, favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. He said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Well, just to remind you again where we are in the story of Joseph, going all the way back to chapter 42, this is the process of reconciliation. And it is a long process. In fact, the, the narrative just stops, really comes to, 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 to uh, slow down. Although now we've, we've moved forward, uh, as we'll see, uh, several years into the future to talk about the end of Jacob's life. This is where we're at. We, we are at the reunion stage. So they've gone through the process of examination, transformation, revelation. Now they are ready for the reunion. And we saw that chapter 47 when they all come together. And now in chapter 48 where we see um, the process of blessing and everything uh, in that regard. Um, well, here, obviously, in, in, at the end of chapter 47, Jacob is preparing for his death. Uh, when I was a... Still a pretty new pastor, still had the new pastor smell on. Uh, I went to do a funeral in the um, graveyard that was right behind our church. We didn't uh, own the land that wasn't our graveyard, but we helped take care of it because it was right behind our church. It was the community graveyard. I did a lot of funerals in, in that graveyard. And I remember escorting a casket up the hill there, and I saw a tombstone that said, you know, Bob Smith, so and so many years next to it was a lady who was an active member in our church, had her first name and last name, and it freaked me out. And I, I thought, is there something that someone kind of forgot to tell me, right? I mean, this, this is a prominent member of our church. And, and I had to like read it, like read it and read it and read it. Like, am I missing something? Well, what I was missing was it didn't have the death date on it. But, but it, it, you know, it had everything else. And, and in that sort of, of course, I'm walking, in, you know, and then, then you're thinking about it, right? And, and so all those details that, you know, it took me a while to see it all. And, and what had happened was that she went and uh, they had prepared everything for, for their own deaths. For her husband died, they went, they, they, they got the tombstone, they, they got the plot, and they, they, they made all the preparations so that when it came, all that was already taken care of. That's really what, what Jacob is doing here is one of his obligations was, was to make his final wishes known. And I would recommend um, each of us do that. Right? I've, I've done a lot of funerals and stuff, but for families where everything is already taken care of, it is the final act of love. And it is a great act of love. Let me tell you something, that, that grief does not, is not a good mix, is, is, it doesn't work well when mixed with responsibility. 
So if you carry the burden of bearing mom or dad and finding the plot and picking the casket and figuring out what song did mom or dad want and who should preach the funeral and who should be invited and who's going to reach out to all those people and who's going to announce it and who's going to write the obituary and, and who's going to call the lawyer and who's going to close the accounts and who's going to try to auction off the property and, and the house, right? All of that sort of stuff. That's a big burden. And, and so it's a big responsibility. Now throw grief on top of it. It's, it's, it's a really important final act, act of love. Um, so uh, let me just, this is free. Uh, let me recommend that each of us do this, particularly as you age. Clean out all the junk in your house. Start there. You do not need all that junk. You can't take it with you. I understand you're a collector, but at some point you got to realize your kids do not want that junk. In fact, I, I did this years ago. I still remember, I think it was a New York Times article or something. It was about how with, we're so rich as Americans that each of us have things that we collect. And, um, and so say moms want to pass down what they collect to their daughters and dads want to, to their sons. The problem is, is that their sons and daughters are collecting things they hope to give to their son and daughter. They don't want your junk. Now, their kids aren't going to want their junk. Right? We're doing this every generation. So what happens is, is everything you highly valued goes to the goodwill or in the trash, right? And, and that's just, that's free. I better move on before I get in trouble. Uh, have a will, final wishes, clearly organized um, so that it can all, all be, be, be taken care of. Preparations, funeral services, securing an inheritance that is legally sound. If there is money left behind, there will be lawsuits and there will be broken relationships, Right? You need, your goal needs to be, you make preparations that I want all my children to still talk to each other the, this, this upcoming Christmas. Right? That needs to be your goal. And every Christmas after that, I do not want to be the cause of the family breaking apart. I had someone say to me recently that, uh, uh, who, who just buried a loved one. Um, and that loved one had taken care of a lot of this stuff. And, and I had made a comment, in my experience, I think all of us should do this. And this person says, no, 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 no. Uh, one of my kids won't hardly talk to me. So, so I'm going to leave all this to them and it's going to be a mess. And maybe then they'll learn their lesson. <laughs> and, and that's the sort of person that needs to be boinked right in the eyes. The Bible has a name for people like that. It's fool. That's a foolish thing. It's a very unloving thing to do. But here's Jacob doing this. Now, they are settled in Egypt and years have gone by, and he's preparing for his death. And he goes to Joseph, who is his favorite child. Remember that. That hasn't changed. But also his most powerful son, and he makes his wishes clearly known. Uh, because Joseph really can secure that, that he can be buried in Canaan. Um, and his basic wish is to be buried in Hebron. So verse 29, if I found favor in your sight, that's a common phrase in Genesis. We, we, we can skip that. Um, but in... Um, uh, in verse 29 30, bury me in my burying place, right? The redundancy there is for, for emphasis. He, he wants to be buried in the family graveyard. Now, the graveyard is the cave of Machpelah, which Abraham bought in Genesis 23. Remember, that was that long chapter that was really boring. Uh, basically, Abraham hired a real estate agent and bought like an acre of land to bury his wife in. And remember, the significance of that is this is the first time um, a Hebrew possesses the land. It's a small piece of land, right? So it's an important moment. And, but the purpose of it was not for life, be fruitful, multiply, but was because of death. 
And so what we have there in Genesis 23, Sarah is buried there. Abraham is buried there, Genesis 25. Isaac is buried there, Genesis 35. Jacob will be buried there, Genesis 50. And so uh, Jacob will make this request twice. So uh, Genesis 49, um, maybe I didn't put it up, or is that 39? No. Okay, so in Genesis 49, 30, he makes the request known. He mentions the cave of Machpelah. Genesis 50, again, we see that he is finally buried there. His, his sons take him to the land of Canaan, to uh, Machpelah, east of Mamre. Remember, Mamre's where Abraham uh, built an altar to the Lord when he first had that covenant made with God. What's that? Had the oak, the oak of Mamre. There you go. And remember, remember when you see a tree and an altar and or an altar in Genesis, that is a picture of the Garden of Eden. So here you have the patriarchs being buried where God came to be with, Israel, with Abraham the first time. They're wanting to be buried essentially in the garden, if you will. Right. So, poor. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's the end of chapter 47. Preparation for his, his, his death. And then in chapter 48, uh, Jacob, as part of these final wishes, he is blessing his children. And, and this will take uh, a little bit. Uh, going in, into 49, he's going to bless each of his, his 12 sons. Um, so notice in verse 1 of chapter 48, Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Now, we have jumped 17 years into time. This will come here, here in, in, in a minute. And Joseph learns um, that his father is ill, which is a way of saying he's on his deathbed. And so Joseph wants to take his two sons to, to be with his father. Now go down to verse 3. Uh, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now, there's that title, El Shaddai, um, a common one that patriarchs use instead of Yahweh in Genesis. It means God Almighty. That's, that's what my translations say, probably what your translations say. Does anyone have the transliteration El Shaddai by chance? No one, I didn't think so, but you probably have a footnote that says Hebrew El Shaddai. Just means God, El Shaddai, Almighty. Um, now, Luz is the original name for Bethel. Remember, it's Bethel, the house of God, where uh, Jacob has this significant moment in his life where God uh, affirms that Jacob was the promised son even over Esau. So this is what we were talking about earlier with Ishmael, is you have Abraham over Terah, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. And here we're going to get something similar with Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, in fact, uh, um, well, verse four, the, the covenant is repeated. So be fruitful, multiply the promise, all that. Verse five and six, notice what happens with Ephraim and Manasseh. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, that's a significant phrase, uh, before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that you have born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by their names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, this is significant. The sons of Joseph here are, are formally adopted by Jacob. 
This all has to do with the allotment of land in Joshua, the naming of the 12 tribes, right? All of this. This is where all this comes from. There is not a tribe of Joseph. Have you ever noticed that? No tribe of Joseph. It's weird. He's the favorite son and he doesn't get a tribe, <laughs> right? But his two sons do. And it is through his two sons, you, you essentially have two tribes of Joseph. They're half tribes, but you, you get two. And so... Um, uh, this is where all this takes place. So Jacob is, uh, formally adopts them so that they become sons of Jacob, therefore tribes of Israel, tribes of Jacob. And this happens here. Notice the order of things. In verse one, the order of the two sons is in order of birth, Manasseh, Ephraim. In verse five, the order is switched. It is Ephraim, and Manasseh. Ephraim is the youngest. So Joseph, and this is going to come back again, Joseph takes the oldest and the youngest to his father. Jacob's going to bless them by the youngest, then the oldest. This is the story of Genesis, that this runs afoul of ancient Near Eastern culture, that in the ancient world, and Joseph struggles with this, in the ancient world, the oldest gets all the good stuff. He carries the, the family name. He gets the most land. He receives the blessing and the birthright, right? And, and throughout the story, that's inverted. God inverts that historic norm. Abel over Cain, right? And of course, Abraham over Terah, all the other ones that we've done at. Here, Jacob is doing it. Now, remember, Jacob stole all of that, but, uh, and it's affirmed later by God. But here, Jacob is proactively choosing the youngest over the oldest, and so um, if we go down to verse eight, uh, this, this is fascinating. Uh, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. By the way, notice something real quick. He sees his children though he is blind. You see, it's a deeper meaning than mere eyesight. That's just a little nugget there for you. Uh, verse 12, then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his hand, his right hand laid it on the head of Ephraim and was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. Okay, so this is a significant scene, as you can imagine, but it should sound familiar. Can you think of a story in Genesis? of an aging, blind patriarch who blesses the younger son over the older, and it initially is viewed as a mistake. And the irony is, that was Jacob's father. You remember the story, right? Isaac is old, and Jacob, in, cohorts, uh, in, in, in partnership with his mother, he dresses as Esau, and he deceives, the deceiver deceives his father. Now, Jacob is going to retell that story, yet it's, he's purposely giving the blessing first to the younger. And this is why you have the right hand, the left hand switch and all that. The right hand was the position of power and influence. Um, I think I've got 
uh, here are two examples of this. That God's right hand is the powerful hand. God's right hand is the hand of prominence and power, right? This is a typical ancient Near Eastern language. So Joseph sets it up that the older is, on, is on, at Jacob's right hand, the younger at J- Jacob's left hand. And what Jacob does is, no, fam, we're going to switch this. And it's a retelling of the Isaac story. And um, uh, however, these two sons stay within the, they're the, the sons of promise because they become part of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Well, um, we'll, we'll skip um, verse 15. Uh, he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and may my name live on in them in the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. May they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Did you notice anything strange there? Now, remember that in Hebrew, repetition is for emphasis. To repeat something three times is to bring it to completion. It is certainty. So when this is used of God, it's particularly important. Let me give you two examples of this. Isaiah 6, what are the seraphim, which are not angels, they are seraphim, which is why the Bible uses the term seraphim and not angels. The seraphim, what are they singing up in heaven? Hymn number two in your hymn Bibles. Holy, holy, holy. Right, so you see the, 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 the repetition three times. Let me give you one that at the end of every service growing up, my home pastor would read this verse. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord calls his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen, right? That is a great, great passage in Numbers. Notice the repetition, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's actually poetry. I, I took it out of the poetic format, but it's poetry. So you have three stanzas, the Lord this, the Lord that, the Lord this. Now, read what we just read again. It's the blessing uh, to Joseph and his sons. And you tell me if you can catch the repetition of God three times. Go to verse 15. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Did you see it? The God, the God, the angel. Well, yeah, so I think we talked about this before. This, of course, is referencing the angel of the Lord, his wrestling partner, wrestling. And it's odd, isn't it, that he would have the God, the God, and we would expect the God. Instead, he inserts the angel. Now, by saying the angel, we immediately are drawn to a specific story wrestling with the angel, right? The one that messed up his hip. Right, and he had to have hip replacement surgery immediately after that. What was his name again? The angel of the Lord. Yeah, but didn't Jacob ask him, tell me your name? Yeah, but he didn't answer it, did he? No. No, I didn't think so. Okay. <laughs> but you know who it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it just ignores the question. He's like a good politician, right? You know, ask Bill Clinton, you know, which, which, how are you going to solve Kosovo? Well, the problem is the economy, right? And that's just what Clinton did. And so uh, that's what the angel of the Lord is. Just ignored the question. It didn't even happen. Well, um, uh, so, but notice here that he hasn't abandoned the Hebrew poetry here. By saying the angel, he is saying the God. He sees them as synonyms. But by using the angel, he's taken us back to a specific time in Jacob's life. 
all the while affirming for us, who did he wrestle? God. And this is our theology of the angel Lord. Who is the angel Lord? Well, I think it's the pre-incarnate Jesus. And, and that's who he is wrestling. And there's a thousand reasons to, to say that. We've, we've, we've explored that in some detail. Before the angel Lord shows up all over um, Genesis and elsewhere in, in the Bible, it seems pretty clear that the angel Lord is Yahweh personified. If you read Exodus 3, the burning bush, it'll say the angel Lord was in the fire. And the next verse, God spoke from the fire. Well, who's in the fire, God or the angel? Well, Jacob would say, yeah, yeah, it's the same person. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's the idea uh, after that is, is that God is with his people. So it's still by fire. So later in Deuteronomy, you get God as a consuming fire. There's your third day reference there, BJ. Um, and, and, and that makes sense because if, if the fire is right there, starting with Moses, that's, that's our God. He's a consuming fire. However, in the burning bush, that fire did not consume. Well, that's, anyways. So um, I, I love the language there of um, um, verse 15, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Remember, Jacob is a shepherd. This is Jacob's version of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Who wrote that? A shepherd. Isn't that cool? Right? And we, we, we spent some time in Psalm 23 not too long ago, and we didn't even make, make reference of this, though, though we could have. Um, and you see the repetition in the blessing. He's repeating the, the covenant. So two things. One is he wants in this blessing, verse 16, for the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to continue through Joseph's sons and through his sons. Um, this is a blessing in posterity, so it would continue. Um, and by the way, this is particularly important for Ephraim and Manasseh because of who their mother is. Their mother is an Egyptian. Now, can you think of a story in Genesis where there is a son of an Egyptian woman? Yeah, Abraham's um, uh, son Ishmael was the offspring of a Jew, well, a Hebrew, Abraham, the first Hebrew, and an Egyptian woman. So the last prominent figure has a son who is the offspring of a Hebrew and an Egyptian. Now, what is different is, is that the Egyptian of Abraham was the slave who has to flee Canaan to go to Egypt for freedom. Now what we're going to have is the descendants of the Egyptian and Hebrew, they become slaves and have to flee Egypt for Canaan. So, so I mean, it's like the Bible was written by God. Um, and the other thing is he wants uh, his posterity to be fruitful and multiply. This, of course, is the story of Genesis going all the way back to creation. And it is the source of uh, the curse of Pharaoh upon Israel. They are fruitful and multiply. In fact, if you take numbers at face value, numbers want to have it up here. These two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, that order, um, they number almost 73,000 people. Now, there's issues with the numbers, the census of Israel, right? And we will probably never explore that here. But uh, if we just take it as it is stated, nearly 73,000 um, are in the exodus from these two half-tribes. So they were fruitful and multiply even through slavery. Well, this order of prominence upsets Joseph, verses 17 to 20. And Joseph 
assumes, well, dad can't see he's getting the two mixed up. After all, he's not been around, right? So, so he, he tries to fix that. And Jacob says, no, I'm doing the right thing. So go down to verse 19. Again, we have to do some skipping. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he. His descendants shall become a multitude of nations. In fact, what is it that we find in the history of Israel? Israel will split and the northern tribes and the southern tribes are named after one tribe each. The southern tribe is named after Judah. The northern tribe, Ephraim. And so here it becomes multiple nations, right? Multiple tribes. And so we see that right here. Jacob is able. Now, he can't see what's in front of him, but he can see what's far ahead of him beyond his own death, which is pretty cool. Well, uh, Jacob makes a few final promises. Uh, verse 21 and 22 then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Notice there that God is promising that he will be with them. By the way, the word you there is plural. This is a problem with English. Unless you're from the South, the second person plural is the same as the first per, uh, the second person singular plural. Oh, gosh, the second person singular, you, is the same as the second person plural, you. Unless you're from the South, and it's y'all. If you're from Pennsylvania, it's youans. But in our Bibles, we keep it you. So read it again, verse, verse 21. I am about to die, but God will be with y'all. This is the 12 tribes of Israel. God's gonna be with all y'all. The second thing he, he prays is that God will bring them back to the promised lands. That, of course, is important because we, the reader, are wondering this is not a satisfying ending of the story. The story is God will bring the Hebrews into the promised land and they will be fruitful and multiply. They will take possession of the land. That's what we expect. You come to the end of Genesis and none of that has happened. None of that has happened. They number what, 70, something like that we saw last week. And they're not in Canaan, they're in Egypt. That's not the promised land. But what's the promise here? God will bring you back here. Well, Finally, there's the issue of the city of Shechem, verse 22. I'd be interested to see what your translations say. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Does anyone there have a reference to Shechem? This is a translation issue. So you get people all, all over the map here. I take it what he's saying is, is that, is that, Joseph will receive a portion of land, even though he's not, there's not a tribe after him. And that land is Shechem. Now, you have to go into the Hebrew to see the word Shechem is in the Hebrew. It's translated and so it's transliterated. Um, but this is a matter of debate. I will say the reason I settle on the Shechem thing is Shechem was an important city for the patriarchs. Um, it was the first place Abraham visited in the promised land, Genesis 12, 6. Jacob settled in the city and purchased land there. That's Genesis 33. Remember that Jacob's sons uh, committed genocide. They were the Shechemites. It happened there. Um, and that we know that Jacob and his sons would pastor flock in the city. 
But what is most significant is the Genesis ends with Joseph saying, when I die and, you, and God takes you to the promised land, bury my bones in the promised land. Where do Israel end up burying Joseph? Joshua 17, 7, Shechem. This is where he's buried. So I, I take that as, as a promise from Jacob to that. Okay, so what do we do with this chapter? Real quick, um, so I wanna make sure that we, we, we did a lot of skipping. What do we do with this? Two things that stick out to me, I'm sure we can look at a bunch of others. The first thing is that God's promises are not racial or ethnic or anything like that. That is to say that the covenant of God with his people are not limited to an ethnicity. And we see this here. We, we start to see it here. Now, this is clear in the Old Testament, but it's hard to see without the New Testament. With the help of the New Testament, you see it everywhere. For example, in Jesus's genealogy are a couple of Gentiles. So there's Rahab, there's uh, Ruth, right? There's, there's Gentiles. And so what we see then is that the Gentiles are grafted into the covenantal people of God. In Jesus' time, we, there are several Gentiles who have converted. They're called pros, uh, proselytes or um, God-fears. And those two terms mean something different. But um, we see that there are Gentiles coming into the covenantal people of God. You read the Old Testament, and it's clear that when Israel takes the land, the purpose was to bring the nations into it. Uh, right, because so when they extend their borders, they're they're drawing the nations closer to God. That was the idea. However, once you get to the New Testament, this is made explicitly clear. You remember in John twelve, on the eve of his execution, Philip brings two Greeks to Jesus, and John makes a big deal of it because it shows the reader that the kingdom Jesus was bringing was not a Jewish one. It was a cosmic one. A cosmic one that would encompass people of all races and ethnicities and all that sort of stuff. And which means to be a son of Abraham is bigger than ethnicity. So let me give you a few examples. Uh, Romans 9. To them, the Jews, belong the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ who is God over all blessed forever. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see the distinction he's drawing there. A lot of the Israelites, they hated the Gentiles because of their ancestry. We're the people of God, you're not. And Paul comes alongside and says, actually, if you read the Old Testament, and, in, and if you come to understand what Jesus accomplished, we realize this is a universal message that goes beyond the Jews. After all, you and I, as far as I know, we are not Jewish. I'm not a descendant of Jews. My family were barbarians in what we now call Britain. That was my family. We were pagans. I'm guessing your family were pagans too. Whether that was, uh, maybe you were Norse pagans, right? Maybe you were British. What's that? Mayan pagans. Mayan pagans, there you go. There you go. Yeah, you could have been Germanic pagans. Could have been Roman pagans. You're pagans. Yet we have been grafted into the promises of God as a result of grace. Now, you're, you're saying, where, where is this? Okay, well, I see this primarily in the promises are given not to Joseph, but to his two sons, who are 
as much Egyptian as they are Hebrew. And they are made tribes. I think that's a big deal. Now, it's subtle. You can pass over it because their mother's not really mentioned. But it's right there. Instead of Joseph becoming a tribe, his half-Hebrew sons are. Now, remember that when you come into the Gospels and Jesus talks to a half-breed. We call her the woman at the well. Yeah, Don. Right, yeah. And of course, that's the promise of Abraham, that, that from you will come nations. Now, that happened practically. I mean, we've been talking about the Arabs and the Jews. Those are nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me give you just, just one more, one more passage, Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you are, were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean, this is just clear, isn't it? Um, yeah, Don. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. We have a habit of Americanizing everything we touch, especially the Bible. Especially the Bible. Um, I'll say this, and then, because I'm, I'm trying not to get in trouble, because there's nothing I like to say. Um, you've probably heard me say that one of the difference between my generation and, like, my parents' generation is they see America as Jerusalem that's lost its way. And I see it as Babylon, that this is what we've always been. And, and a lot of this generational, I get that. But it's becoming easier to see my side now. <laughs> I mean, when you're chopping up kids, I mean, at some point, you're like, this is in Jerusalem. But, but the idea was almost like we've become the people, the promised people of God, almost. You know, that we, we saw America. So when America went the wrong way, it was, well, we just got to get back onto the path we were on. And that sort of Christendom became prominent among American evangelicals. That's reading America into the text. And that, that could be dangerous. It could be really dangerous. Um, anyways. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah well, yeah. I, you, you're trying to get me in trouble now. I'm not against dispensationalism. I'm, I'm, I'm not there and I'm not against it all at the same time. So I'm agnostic a lot of end time stuff. So, um, so I'm not a covenant theologian. I'm not a dispensationalist, but I am both at the same time. <laughs> if you are hidden in Christ, you've got nothing to worry about. All right, we've got to move. Second thing is God sees farther than we can. Uh, I did a little bit of research on eagles, only because I remember we talked about these when I was like in third grade and I thought it was cool. Eagles are famous for um, uh, having incredible eyesight, which I am quite jealous of. I can't see, that's about it, right? And, but eagles can see like eight times that of a human, which is like 4,000 times beyond what I can see. And so, um, for example, they can, they can spot a small rabbit like two miles away. That's incredible. That's incredible. 
And so if, if we could personify this eagle who can see what's happening way over there, my temptation is because I'm limited by my sight, I can only respond to what it is I see. Whereas the eagle may be able to look farther like, oh, you don't have to worry about it. So too, if in this text we see that God sees farther than we could ever imagine. Again, Genesis ends with Israel outside of the promised land. And here God says, look, you're going to get there. may not be the way you want to get there. certainly isn't going to be easy. It's going to require a lot of suffering and generations are going to come and go and they are just going to suffer. But it will happen. This is something we Americans, American Christians have to accept. What if everything you're praying for will not be fulfilled for 400 years? Are you okay with that? Will you keep praying? I hope so. I hope so. I do hope you will. Because God sees a lot farther than we do. And the story of Joseph, because it ends with a cliffhanger. Why are they in the promised land? Well, you have to read the sequel. And God is with them throughout it all. So let me encourage you. You may not be able to make sense of what God is doing in the world right now, but this is why our eschatology is so important. If you know it'll work out eventually in the end, then you can be faithful in the small things because God will be faithful in those big things. So it's okay if we die and America is a pagan mess because that's where we're heading because our hope isn't in what we see in this life, but what God sees well beyond. And that's something I have to keep reminding myself quite a bit. Okay, Don, Danny, anyone else? We miss anything?